when 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 I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. Yeah. Let's get into it, bud. Season two. Season two, episode, I believe, eight. And in this episode, we are going to cover a bit of the news. Obviously, Russia just officially invaded Ukraine last night. Um, so that has big ramifications. We're also going to do a Q&A. A lot of you have been reaching out. We really love when you reach out with comments because it's easier for us to see the comments. So these are some questions. We're going to go through those. We're also going to continue on from our last episode where we talked about how to value land, how to think about land. Now how to build on that land. Yeah, how to build on that land once you've managed to secure it. Check out that previous episode uh, if you want to hear a bit more about that. But to start off, Neil, man, what's going on? Not much. I don't know if it's crazy. I'm looking at your list of things. you got some stuff popping off. I've been kind of quiet. Yeah. uh, I'm still working on that six unit that I've been working on for about 300 years. Um, It's on the street that I already own. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember? Uh, There's been a few that have come across the table, but I'm really questioning what the play is right now. There's a couple different development sites that I'm looking at, as well as a few older buildings, and it's trying to navigate the rules that are going in and how that's going to impact what kind of what to build. Like I'm, I'm debating right, yeah. apartments. I know we talked about it last time. I was looking <clears> at a hundred unit and a 60 unit, still looking at those. Uh, I've met with the builder to try and get some pricing and it's absurd how much it costs to build now. Yeah. I mean, Insane. I know we both deal with Lindsay construction, shout out Lindsay construction. Um, and they're fantastic to consult with because they, do some of these massings and they can give you a rough idea early on the process. Pretty so quick. we talked about in land, how your due diligence changes. You're not obviously getting home inspections. You're talking to planners and shout outs to Chris who commented. One of the things you should do when you're buying land is to consult with a planner. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, right. Chris is a good buddy, a uh, business partner on some endeavors, client friend, all, all that good stuff and incredibly smart. Um, and he's so right on that. Um, yeah, yeah. Consult it's, with it's the part, of, it's part of the due diligence, and they're they're good for that. And to be honest with you, this is a prime example of that. So before going through with the purchase, I did meet with them, and they ran a preliminary budget. It's a high level, and obviously it's not necessarily super accurate. Plus minus by like 30%. 30%, but it still came in higher cost to build, not including the land, than the end value appraisal. Yeah, and part of that end value appraisal is driven by location, but the location doesn't. The cost of materials doesn't care about the location. This it's is the same the price to build no matter where it is. And what we all know, it's worth more in one location than another. Yeah, it yeah. was it was a substantial difference. Without land, they, the building appraised at, well, with land in the building, it appraised, completed, 30 million bucks. For the, 100 units? For 100 units. Yeah, the so constru- 300 a door. The construction cost was 35 million. Yeah. Not including land. door. Not including land. HST included, though. HST and included. Yeah. yeah. And again, they would have built in a... There's a big, there's a buffer yeah, there. There's, there's a, a buffer, buffer there. I mean, even in their more pinned down estimates, you start kind of with a 10% contingency. And then when you actually yeah. put it to tender, you, you narrow that down still. I mean, and that's also just a couple points here and there from the change in that price. Yeah. So that, and I mean, there's a lot of things that have changed to get the price down. Like we realized with the drawings, the layouts that we could change a lot of things to get some efficiencies and save on money. But it was just interesting to see that it's not like, oh, you get land, just build everything you can build because it's it's going to make you money. It's getting to the point now. I think there was a sweet spot there for a few years where you could do it and get yeah. away with it. And now, unfortunately, it's gotten to the point where you've got to be a lot more selective with what you do because you might not necessarily make your money back. If you, finished, if you finished a building and brought it to market 36 months ago, you were just crushing it. Yes. Because cost of construction was still reasonable. The price per door for the land, you probably got a good deal on. Rents were strong. Rents were strong. No rules. Yeah, it was good old days but so you've got a couple projects coming across your desk navigating through those yeah um you're also working on uh, some things in your neck of the woods like you said what's the hold up there yeah so you mean like on land deals no no like uh you had a couple buildings oh yeah so the ones that i have under contract it's more so environmental concerns uh the neighborhood that i'm in when it was built all the multi-units there had underground oil tanks so i'm basically dealing with the repercussions of that i actually had drillers out there today um, so they're drilling test holes to see how far the contaminants go mm-hmm. and what it's going to take to remediate. Uh, we've had to vacate a bunch of units in the basements as well because we're going to actually probably end up having to tear up some of the basements to get the contaminant out. But uh, it's, it's I think the frustrating part, it's not even the cost, it's the time. Yeah. Everything, it's yeah. like, okay, so you now need to can't contact the city three and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then once you get that, they have to write a report for two and a half weeks. Then they need to drill a hole in the ground and then monitor that for four months. And then we give you a rough idea to get an answer and it's still not a guarantee. And then we have to schedule all the stuff in to dig it out and work on it and then approve it. 
and then close it and then monitor it again for another four months to confirm that we actually did clean it. And then maybe we can give you a stamp of approval. All the while, a regular grade A bank is not going to finance no, you for that. they have no interest in that. They're like, oh, so you're telling me it's contaminated and you won't have rent for 12 months? Yeah. Here <laughs> you go. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's the timeline that's killer. I wish there was just like a, they put a dollar amount on it and you could just blast it off. But anyways, it, it's I think it's fortunately it's not as bad as I expected. Um, but it's again, just the timeline is absolutely killer. Well, the price of oil is going up so much, you should just bottle it. Well, this is what I'm thinking. I think I'm going to clean the soil and I might actually get my my cost back through what's in the ground. There you go. Uh, Should mention this show is uh, not giving investment advice. We're told we need some sort of disclaimer. Yeah, we need a little disclaimer. We are not professional registered investment advisors on any front. Uh, We're realtors, uh, which is clearly not an investment advisor. Uh, We're just sharing our opinions. And if you want to consult, we should consult professional advice before making any decisions. Having said that, Neil was very much right about the price of oil. We're going to get into the news in a second, uh, but oil's up like 10% because sadly... Check check the last reel from yeah. two weeks ago or a week ago, whatever it was that we talked about it. Neil may have mentioned that some crap was going down in Russia and it may be a good time to buy some oil-based investments. And if you did that, you probably made 10 to 20% in the last week. Just yeah. throwing it out there. I love how Neil references the situation. You said, if, if things pop off between Russia and Ukraine, and said, now he said, there's some crap going on over in Russia. <laughs> I would say yeah. I would say Putin's popping off. So we're also not geopoliticists, but geopolitical Yeah, we're not either. diving into that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you, you were right. Uh, what else is going on? You were just away? Yeah, so I went, I went on a little yeah. trip. Um, I went back out west. I think we've I've been out west a few times since we started the pod. But um, it's, again, it was crazy to see because so I went to Revelstoke and, like, this is it's similar to Halifax in the sense that their real estate markets are insanely high, like crazy, crazy high. Like to buy a new home there, it's a couple million dollars. To buy like a proper, like big house, like a lake, like a lakefront house would be five, ten million dollars. Like it's crazy numbers. Right. And it's because of like the availability of the land. It's similar to what we face in Halifax yeah. with the peninsula, where the shape of it forces the values up because you can't go outwards unless you go into a different area, which really screws up traffic and lengths of time to get to places. Um, these these towns, which are wedged between mountains, what are you going to do? You can't build up the sides of the mountains. So the little flat spots that make these towns up become ultra, ultra valuable. Like there's just, and there's yeah. just nowhere that you can go from there. And so a lot of times you see like a place like Banff, it fills out. There's nowhere else for them to go because either the land's protected or not available. And then you get these little auxiliary towns as they start to get bigger. But and they're then, half an hour away, 45 yeah. minutes away. And then as per our last episode, and we'll talk a little bit about this today too, is if the end home is worth... $2 million yeah. and it costs $850,000 to build that home. Yeah. The land is going to go on the market for $1.15 million. Exactly. And that's what happens with a stabilized market. And it's the same thing. Again, I was there. I tried to look at some multi-units. They've had, they've already had their boom and bust a few times in the past through due to oil. And they've just stabilized now. All their, all their units just trade at a stabilized value. Everyone knows what they are. You buy them for a standardized return. You're not finding as many of these massive lift deals. Um, and yeah, exactly. Same thing with the land. People are seeing, oh, well, it costs 850 k to build. The house is worth $2 million. The land's going to sell for a million bucks. Yeah. So a lot of times these places, you have to play a little bit of a longer term game. And you're starting to see that in Atlantic Canada now too, where yeah. I had a call just before we came in here. And he's like, what are people paying? Like, what's the cap rate? Or what are they paying for land? And I'm like, people are no longer buying to get a return in 12 months. They're looking to get a return in 60 months. Yeah. Everything's a five-year play now. Um, even being able to get all your money back on a refinance is, is substantially reduced now. Mm-hmm. It's also changing how people are evaluating existing stock because, you know, there's so much value in the land. It's like, all right, how much home is here? You know, does it make sense to kind of tear down the existing home or renovate the existing home and so on and so forth? But um, yeah. anything else going on? No, I uh, I don't have anything too crazy. I think I think once I get one of these development sites, I threw a few offers out on some other sites. I won't get into them until I uh, until I get them. But uh, yeah, that's, I just, I think we've talked about a few times I want to make the transition, but now I'm feeling nervous just with the cost of construction Mm -hmm. Um, and also with the rules that are going in, like it, it changes the market dramatically if you can't increase rents, right? Like, especially like if you build an apartment, even if it's brand new, so you get to set your initial rents, but next year, I'm going to tell you right now, your costs are going to go up by more than 2%. And the year after they're going to go up by more than 2%. So if they start continuing that and in other places, they have rent controls at 1.2% or 1.5%, it's almost impossible to start making money out of these buildings eventually they go negative right so that's where i'm we had this conversation last week of just does it start to make sense to build condos because when you look in ontario's market the day that rent control went in not day but the five years within rent control going in their condo market and condo construction 
went skyrocketed yeah. and their rental apartment construction actually dropped. And it actually ended up causing rents to go up more because now they're all private owner and condos trade at a higher value than apartments do. Absolutely. And you aren't necessarily reliant on new people coming to the city um, to, say, move condo stock. I mean, it certainly helps. But with the yeah. rental market, you're, you're heavily reliant on increasing population into yeah. the city. But with a condo, you could conceivably sell it to someone who's just looking to move place to place in the city, and then they can individually rent those should they choose, and, and you're no, not yeah. subject to, to the kind of rent control. But yeah. um, what are you super interesting. Um, yeah, so I got that property in the South Shore under contract, um, working with some partners uh, and planners, very, very important, um, <laughs> to know exactly what we can do there. And it's really yeah. exciting. I, I, um, it looks even maybe a little bit better than we initially thought. Nice. Um, What's that? Nice. Yeah, yeah. So also I'm excited by the type of construction. We'd be looking to do effectively three-level townhouses. Stacked townhomes. Yeah, stacked townhomes in, you know, three different phases perhaps. So you're bringing your cost of construction way down, not necessarily per square foot, even though you are to some degree, but it's more so you can do it in phases and there's less units and and so on. So it's a manageable project to buy that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And I love Lunenburg, so that's exciting. Uh, what else? Um, I'm working, I've got a letter of intent going in on a 60 unit site, um, that does have an existing structure on it, which will help with the financing. It's a commercial structure though. It's probably going to require 35% down. So I may be talking to the seller, you know, I'll require a vendor take back on that particular one. Yep. Um, and then still working through some due diligence on that collection of parcels there. And one of the things that came up in consultation with a planner, uh, is that not only am I restricted there, height wise, which I knew already, but because it's near certain, um, public spaces, there's also shadow requirements. These oh, are these little things that when yeah. you see the site and someone does a masking and says, I don't know, you can do about this here, but this is a high level valuation, right? You, you know, you on get that, into weird things like that on that same topic. And I meant to bring this up. Prices of real estate in these little Valley towns are absurd. You'll never see a tall building. Yep. You're going to block the view of the mountains. Oh, interesting. Yeah, That's yeah, why cool, you're never allowed cool. to build up. Even though mm-hmm. like a low-rise condo will trade for a million bucks, yeah. 1,200 square feet, they are not allowed. I'm sure developers love to put 80 stories in there, but you're yeah. not allowed because it will impact the view of the mountains. Well, we are right beside something here that um, anyone who's familiar with downtown planning in Halifax, there is a sight line to Citadel Hill, from Citadel <laughs> Hill to the water, that there is a strip of the town where you can't build over a certain height and people out just of in case of invasion they need to shoot cannonballs down yeah yeah nobody takes the fort yeah um i, I remember when little learning that it had never been defeated it was also never attacked <laughs> but it was never defeated but nobody takes the fort uh yeah and then i'm kind of um hoping to pick up a 12 unit building there i think i touched on that a bit before so a few things going on exciting times got to figure out the money side of stuff but let's dive into a little bit of news we touched on it obviously the biggest one yeah, I mean, when people watch this episode, we don't know. We could by the time could we have escalated. This, yeah, could escalate. Could be done. It sounds like they're moving pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, it's sad to say, but uh, I can't imagine Ukraine's going to put up a long, drawn-out resistance. At least from a it would be, I think, it would be damaging to their to the country to try and Man. fight back yeah. against a superpower. But it seems like Putin's got a pretty strong mission to to make the move. Um, again, I think. For me, out of this, the biggest thing that I was kind of watching is just how it's going to impact the market. Um, in, as terrible as it is, it's a huge. It can be a huge spur for like economy for yeah. all these countries in the EU that are going to be spending a ton of money to go over there. Well, the EU is is now almost immediately they they started towards a plan towards more renewable energy sources, alternative energy sources to get off the reliance on Russia because historically most of the EU was reliant on on Russia. Uh, for oil. And even up until recently, Germany was working on a major pipeline to Russia, which has now been halted. Yeah. And of course, the first thing they made is like, oh, maybe we should have done this years ago. And that's always the way with renewable energy. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see, obviously people in the oil sector are doing fantastic. They're making lots of money off this currently. Yep. The rest of the market's getting crushed. It'll be curious to see what happens with some of these alternative energy, renewable energy sources Maybe they'll go on a run. I mean, it's a exploratory. I, the, the response field. time is what I think gets lost. Yeah. Like it, it's not something that they can overnight establish. Yeah, it they takes can't slap years. Up those wind farms. No, they can't slap up a wind farm. 
Solar is probably a little quicker, but even that takes a long, long time. Putting the infrastructure, the distribution, all that. And the adoption of it, yeah. But this might be the, the push that is kind of required to help kind of get the ball really rolling on that side. I'll be very curious to see what happens with oil because everyone's kind of vowing to be like, all right, screw it. We're going to stop buying and trading and doing all these things with Russia uh, in an effort to try and cool them. Um, and in the event, it's going to, in turn, sorry, it's going to cause oil to increase. But at the same time, then production numbers are going to go nuts. And so I'll be curious to see how the response in production goes. And then eventually, I'm sure some sort of agreement will, will be struck and it'll cause things to come down. But how hard will it come down? Yeah. Right. So, like, I think we might have a bit of a boom. I think we're already seeing it. The price of oil is quite close to its old historical highs. When you account for inflation, not quite, but it's it's there. Um, but I'm just very curious to see kind of the progression moving forward, how how strange, like, strict people get with not purchasing goods necessarily from Russia and then the impact was what follows that and how to also be careful for that. Because now it's not like oil is just going to be great forever. It's it's now also start it's great if your you're exits. invested in oil. It is great if you're invested it's in oil. It's terrible if you're not. For everything else. Everything else is going to um, cost more. Petroleum is also a major input product. This is going to cause further inflation. inflation. And I mean, it's going to be great for certain aspects of the American economy, right? Yep. The American economy makes a lot of money off of war and oil. Yeah. But, man, the redistribution of wealth is just going to continue to gap, gap, gap during this whole thing. 100%. Um, and crypto is getting killed also. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it follows the market. And um, there's a big kind of connection between crypto and a lot of mining places in, in Russia and so on and so forth. Um, Continuing with cost increase. Yeah. Bank of Canada increased the uh, rates by 0.25%. Oh, I didn't know about that. Not a huge amount. Kind of what was expected. But yeah. it, they, there was an increase. That being said, I was actually just talking with some private bankers and they were saying due to this, depending on how it progresses in Russia, the next hike, which is supposed to be a half point in the next quarter, um, they might slow it down a little bit or do a little bit less because it might be too much impact at once uh, to, to markets. Yeah. Um, but again, something to watch for, even if they hold off for a quarter or two, rates are going to continue to go up because at the end of the day, there's still going to be that crazy amount of inflation. Um, it's, it's something to be careful of. Again, we've said this a bunch of times, but... Rates are cranking up. Inflation's cranking up. I'd say keep an eye on things. Like it's, it, We're going there. And now we're turning to kind of daily life, COVID-wise, here in Nova Scotia, following pace with a bunch of other places in the country. Um, a, a concrete plan has come out. Well, a moving target plan has come out from the government <laughs> uh, about phasing ourselves out of quarantine, out of whatever Mask. this craziness we've been living Vaccine, under. Vaccine, passports. Yeah. I can't believe they're removing that already. Well, so when people watch... When, when people watch this episode, which will be the 28th of February, yep. uh, proof of vaccination is supposed to be removed for most activities, i.e. going to a restaurant, going into a sporting event. You'll no longer need to have that. Uh, March 7th, the gathering and capacity limits will increase. So, you know, party on, let's go. Um, you can <laughs> have, you know, weddings and things like that will be a little bit different. And then March 21st, um, all of the gathering limits all the face masks and all of the distancing will be lifted. I know this is a big thing for people with kids in school because the idea is when they come back from March break, the kids hopefully will not have to wear masks. That, that's a huge, huge change. It's yeah. been two years, literally two years basically exactly, and it's it's going back around. Yeah. Um, I think there was intent to keep it for like what is it, long-term care facilities and hospitals stuff, which yeah, I think, yeah, actually think makes sense. I think that makes total sense. Um, and obviously if you still want to, like my wife was like, you know what? I, I probably will still wear a mask in certain instances. And I think there'll be a lot of people who will operate that way individually 100%. for quite some time. Yeah. And I could imagine seeing things where businesses, maybe restaurant industry, um, banking, things like that. I could see them maybe for a longer term, keeping plastic screens up or keeping masks. I think up. a lot of the yeah. screens will stay, especially yeah. in some of these high volume places, like you said. Um, yeah, I can definitely see it it's staying for a bit. But I, I think this is good progress because, again, the idea with all of this stuff was to not inundate our medical system. And I think they have a fairly good handle on it. Uh, there's been, when there is spikes, it gets a little out of hand. Um, but I think there's starting to be some control and the, and the, the potency will say of it's starting to go down. Yeah. So this is a good step forward to getting the economy to come back. Yeah. Because, again, we're taking a beating in a lot of other places. So this should hopefully help to, to re encourage things that also um canada removed its requirements for a pcr test to get back in yeah which is honestly huge i don't know i know a lot of people haven't traveled as much during covid but if you did you will know that a pcr test depending where you're going to leave costs 100 to 200 bucks 
and then to come back could cost anywhere from a hundred to three hundred dollars. Yeah. So on top of it already being expensive, you're kind of getting a kick in the teeth, um, and you had to get them done within a certain period, twenty-four to seventy-two hours, which can be really tough because if you're traveling, sometimes you're in places that don't have all of that. Yeah. Um, and so if you're flying on a Sunday, or you get delayed, or yeah, yeah, or you don't get the results in time, whatever it may be, it, it was very difficult. I know a few times for for myself to get back. Um, so it, that I think is going to be really good. And actually I've seen a lot of articles saying that travel's already exploding, like prices for flights in March have gone up 30%. Yeah. Um, which, which is good. It's, it's funny though, cause at the same time oil's flying up. Um, so it's probably gonna be really, really expensive to travel midsummer. Yeah. Some of that is, is going to be the cost of flying the airplane. Yeah. Um, it's going to be up quite a bit, but it's a good step. We're slowly even, resuming into, I would say, normalcy and what where we were. Yeah, hopefully the supply chain starts increasing. Factories and construction places can get to full capacity. Even restaurants being able to stay open normal hours. It's going to be great for the economy, and hopefully everything goes nice and smoothly. So we're going to dive into some questions here. Now let's do questions. We're going to whip through these uh, sort of quickly. Um, Hannah asked, they said, we're buying a duplex. One side is empty, um, and the other side is tenant-occupied, but about 50% of the market rent. So they want to move into the tenant-occupied side, uh, which typically, as the purchaser of a home, you can fill out a Form DR2. The seller serves it to the tenant, et cetera, et cetera. These sellers are not willing to serve that Form DR2. So there's one unit vacant. There's one unit occupied. The purchaser, Hannah, wants to occupy the move into the occupied unit um, and presumably rent the empty one at market rent and perhaps even one day rent the other one at, at market rent. The challenge is that Form DR2, you're only allowed to serve that, it turns out, when you're buying. When you're buying. And there was a lot of confusion around this, myself included, that I thought that you could still apply the form DR2 um, at any time. But that is specific only to the sale. Almost so the question, sabotage me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the question then becomes, well, how do you get access to your own property? And in this particular case, you would file a form J, which is essentially a dispute resolution form. You want the end of tenancy for, all, you know, unusual or or a situation that doesn't fall within one of the standard forms and you would have to go there and have a hearing and present your case so specific to hannah's case i would still have the lawyer fill out the affidavit saying yes we are going to own or occupy this unit i would get the vacant unit occupied right away uh, so that you can explain at the hearing why you cannot just simply occupy the vacant unit um and then i would get some sort of confirmation that the seller refused to provide the to to serve the tenant with the form dr2 because then you can say listen i as the purchaser of this property did everything right i've got my affidavit saying i'm moving in there the other unit is occupied i want to move into that particular unit and here's proof that i tried to get the seller to do it and they wouldn't do it i think then you've got a really good case to take to the tenancy board but you have to serve the tenant with the form j you have to wait for hearing you've got to go down that that rabbit hole it's not going to be fun I've had this happen. There's two, and there's two other things they mentioned here as well. Um, potentially talking about cutting a deal. I would always suggest this. It's worth cutting a deal. Yeah. Because the headache and time for both you and the tenant is no fun. Like it's a big drawn out process. There's hearings. Those are stressful in themselves. You're trying to put together all these documents and like whatever everyone says, and it creates a lot of dispute. Um, so I usually would suggest just going to a tenant and offering them a lump sum of cash and and like a decent amount. Like don't be like five hundred bucks. Yeah, two grand, twenty five hundred yeah. bucks, like something that makes totally. it worthwhile, uh, or a system saying, "Hey, look, I found a unit, very similar to what you have. It's a little bit more pricey. I'm going to give you this much money. It'll offset the cost for the first year, whatever it may be." Um, but I've had I've had clients go through this process, and they've gotten it like they let's say won their dispute or won their claim, um, but instead of it being like a sixty or ninety days notice, they were allowed to give twelve months notice, Whew. which is which can be tough, and it was because they were buying to actually move in. And they didn't have to wait 12 months. So they actually had to go find something for another year before they could move wow. into the space. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's tough. And right now, especially the tenancy board is, I mean, they're there for both, I guess, tenants and landlords. But the, the sentiment towards landlords is quite low. And so they like, will, likely will side with the tenant. That said, the tenancy board um, does want to be fair and does proceed rationally. So if you can prove a rational case as to um, what you did and how you tried to act in good faith and follow the rules, i.e. you have that affidavit, you asked the seller to serve the form DR2, they just flat refused. You need to be able to prove all of that. Because then you could could say arguably the form DR2 still applies, 
because we tried to do it as part of this purchase. So the spirit yeah. of the rule of the tenancy board is there. It just happened that the seller refused to do it, and that's kind of beyond your control. Yeah. The challenge in this particular case is they're going to say, well, why didn't you just move into the vacant one? So you have to have a legitimate reason. Yeah. That, you know, you wanted to rent that one at full market because financially that's what you needed to offset your mortgage or what have you. You have to have all those ducks in a row and have a it helps logical case. case. Yeah. It's still, it's still an opinion-based system, which yeah, yeah. makes it unfortunate. But I think also being proactive, I'm always very direct with tenants. Um, I explain to them the situation and you may be surprised that they will say, yeah, I understand it, it is at the end of the day your house and we'd love to work with you and get it in writing, obviously, when they agree to something. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people will understand that, uh, you know, they might have to move out as part of this process. Yep. Next question. Brock, I got, I got to read this. Yeah. He says, I have been watching your podcast religiously over the past week. Thanks, Brock. I hope that everyone's doing the same. Yeah, love it. Um, but he's wondering if someone has a bad debt to income ratio. So that's basically they're calculating how much debt you're carrying relative to how much money you make. Um, and there's different ways that they look at it and sometimes how they include rents. Um, you should, should I be worried about my refinance? Uh, is there any way to looking into this before buying the, the building or the multi-unit? And I'm saying this because my refinance might be larger than my pre-approval. This is something that you do need to be kind of concerned about because if you can't cover the amount of money that you're borrowing, there is a chance on a residential side that they won't necessarily extend it to that point. They are, I find, more willing to go over a little bit uh, with like a line of credit and things like that over what your pre-approval amount was going to be. But in a multi-unit case, more likely than not, what's going to happen is you're going to go to commercial financing and they'll lend you 75% based on the rental income. That's that's what happens with multi-unit refinances is they're basing it on the rental income and no longer your personal over income. Over five units. Right, I, I don't know if he's talking about a duplex though. You can right? do you can do less than five units. I've done a three yeah. unit at seventy five percent with commercial. You mean? Yeah, yeah, seventy five percent loan, um, and they did it based on income approach. Right. So, and then that's what I did when I got started because one of the first places I had was a triplex, you had and that it same was issue. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't really have the income to to suffice it, and so to do that, we had to go income approach. The appraisal was done on income approach, and the refinance was also done on income approach, and it reduced the amount that I get. Like again, it, I went from eighty to seventy five. And I had to go with a non-grade A lender. I had to go with like a B lender. Mm-hmm. So instead of paying what, what would have been like 1.8% at the time, I probably was paying about three. Which also sometimes can hurt the servicing. But what you're saying is when you go with commercial financing, they look at the building and the asset and the cash flow. Yeah. Whereas if you go residential, they look at the you as the borrower. Yeah. Um, Brock, if you go back and you check out our episode on like burring places, we, we get into this a little bit. Burring. But yes, you should be able to prepare for this in advance because if you're working with a really good mortgage broker, they're going to say, what are you trying to do with this property? Okay, you're yeah. going to fix it up and you want to refinance it. Yeah. Well, then right away, they're putting you in a different product, probably a variable mortgage, right? They're 100%, not putting, right? variable open because so, you don't so want the fees. You should already have had this, this conversation. And then they're going to say, listen, you can make that place beautiful, but if you take it from 350 to 500, I can't get you a mortgage at 500. Yeah. They should know that in advance. And even if the rents are really good and they add that to your income, it may not move the needle enough. So this is yeah. why you need to have a really good relationship with your broker and talk about these things up front. They As can't Neil, give you the specifics for numbers, but they'll no. be able to give you the suggestions and, and rough ideas so you know what you're working with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you need to kind of lay that plan out. I talk about this exit strategy. What is your exit strategy to get out of this property? Yeah. And then as Neil was saying, if you change it to a commercial loan, looking at just the cash flow of the property, you're going to eat it on rate, but then they'll care less about your personal debt service ratio. Hopefully that was helpful. Yeah. Try not to be too rate sensitive when investing. Yeah. To, to yeah. an extent. It, it, will really, it will really hinder your ability to grow. I know I had somebody like, I can't believe I got to, if I go this way, I've got to pay three and a half percent. It's like, man, any time before three years ago, if you got a rate of three and a half percent, you're happy. Yeah. I remember signing right? 3.3 being like, holy, yeah. free money. Yeah. Free money. Um, Mitchie, Mitchie Doodoo. Mitchie Doodoo. Uh, I answered this question online too. Again, comment in, in there for, for questions. Do you guys ever use credit unions for mortgages? <laughs> Pros, cons, our last mortgage we pitted, broker against the bank that we had a good history with and the bank got us a decent cash signing bonus in better terms and never considered this previously. First thing is, yes, I've used credit unions. Um, I think they're great because they do a lot of alternative properties and alternative areas. There's some lenders who don't touch commercial under a million dollars. Right? There are some lenders that just say, no, under a million dollar loan, we have no interest in it. Um, credit union, they absolutely You're have an appetite for way that. Way more flexible. Yeah, yeah. And if you want to buy something in a um, kind of a bit more rural, there's some major lenders who are like, we're not going to loan you $600,000 on a commercial plaza in the middle of nowhere. Credit union will. Renovation loans, conventional lenders might do 10% of purchase price. 
credit union, I will do 100% of purchase price. If you have an appraisal to support it, yeah. they will give you a massive construction loan with proper draw setups and everything on your on a personal house. Yeah, so I've used them for um, like a vacant commercial property, uh, for a mechanic shop. Uh, again, things that were maybe a little bit um, less desirable to traditional, more even, traditional lenders. Even environmental concerns. Yeah. You can purchase yep. with an environmental concern as long as you may have a remediation plan or a cost to do so. It's something that they can blend in. Our regular bank will not yeah. touch that or they'll get you to put down an absurd amount yeah. uh, to, to cover their ass. Um, so yeah, I, I'm huge and both of us have used credit unions a bunch. This idea of pitting them against is interesting. I, I'm i big on pitting people against each other in the sense of like, <laughs> when I'm buying a car, I'll usually call two dealers and be like, hey, I'm yeah, buying this yeah. car and put, them, like, put the two phones together and let them battle it down to the zero. But I don't know, in this situation... I, I struggle because I, I say you want to build a relationship with your broker. And so it's almost like a spit in the face to do such a thing, I, I feel like. Um, but I, I can also respect it in some level of like you're trying to get the best deal. Um, but I, I don't know if I necessarily would do that. I think usually the broker is already incentivized enough because they only get paid by putting through the deal that they're going to grind as hard as they can. And realistically, you're looking to build like if you want to do more than one property, yep. you're looking to build a forward relationship with your broker and building that will be more valuable than the $1,000 cash signing bonus that you're going to get on the purchase. Well, one of the questions in here was also any cons to going with the credit union. They can sometimes be a little bit slower. Um, their rates can be a little bit higher. I'd say they find them a little faster. Oh, really? I've okay, had them fund in like a week. A funding I found was quick. Approval I found was slow. Yeah, but okay. Anyway, yeah. Um, you know, so, the, so there might be some cons there. And this whole pitting against, I, I feel a couple ways about that. One... For me, it's all about service. And if someone has given me better service, I wouldn't necessarily throw them by the wayside because someone else gave me a cash bonus. Um, the better terms are is interesting for sure because I think, you know, you want to be responsible and get the best terms possible. That said, I'm looking at this scenario and saying, all right, you had an independent broker and you pitted them against the bank and you end up going with the bank. And that's great. They had a, a great product for you, great terms. They even give you a little bit of cash. Say you want to do something later the next year. Banks can say no. And the bank says no. Which is likely. It's, it's quite possible. Yeah. Now you have to go back to that <laughs> broker. And so whatever cash that was, I mean, if someone offered me $10,000 and decent mortgage terms on something, I still wouldn't throw out my broker mm-hmm. because that's a lifelong relationship. That's a partnership. Right? That started with one duplex with zero money down to like what I'm doing now. That started um, with beatboxing, didn't it? Uh, you're thinking of breakdancing, but that's just normal. Um, um, so I I don't know. I I feel differently about that. I love the aggressive spirit. Um, and maybe it leads to a great relationship with that bank where you can do a lot of things, but what if the next product you need to go through a credit union and your broker (laughs) needs to make the deal happen for you through a credit union? He's going to pit you against his broker fee. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Those things have a funny way of coming back around. Um, um, yeah, I would say the lot to end that would just be I'd feel more comfortable pitting two grade A banks against each other. I'd go to CIBC and I'd go, yeah. I'd go to TD. Those mortgage advisors don't get a direct cut from that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a little unfortunate to run them against each other as well, but I'd feel less bad about doing that because to be honest with you, in a year or two when you go back, the person at CIBC that gave you the mortgage probably is in a different position and you're going to have someone totally different doing your mortgage there. Yeah, but it is a good point because I know that someone commented on one of our posts about mortgage brokers and, and implied that going direct to your bank can actually be better in some cases. Um, certainly rate wise, there are instances where it'll have advantages. Um, we're not finance we, professionals, so don't take our advice. Well, I'm just saying, you, you know, uh, different cases, different scenarios. Uh, next Amanda's one, question there, yeah. Amanda, I feel like you're calling me out. Can you explain <laughs> private construction loans a little bit? I am beginning to look at building a duplex on land that will be gifted to me, but I was told by my mortgage broker that construction loans are only given out by banks couple errors. I don't know who told you that, but um, private construction loans, I'll start with that. Private construction loans are available in a ton of different ways, but really everything with private money or even any regular loan from a, a grade B like CUA or credit union is based on your appraisal values. So you need to have some sort of show that there is going to be value at the end of this thing and then they'll lend against that. So for example, you're going to get this land gifted to you so I guess you'll you'll owe nothing on, you'll have nothing into it. So there's already equity there. You can say the land's worth, say, $100,000. And now you want to build a duplex that's going to be worth 700000 So you say, okay, go to the bank. I have a duplex that's going to be worth $700,000. Depending on what bank you go to, they're going to be willing to give you a percentage of that to build it. So they're going to say, what do you owe now? You're going to say, I owe $0. And they'd say, okay, we'll give you 70% of the seven hundred grand. 
will give you $490,000 in the course of draws to build that. Where private loans become more valuable is they might go to a higher percentage ratio and they may also negate the fact of you having to put in cash. Most banks, even with the appraisal and even knowing that there's a ton of equity on the table, may expect or want to see you put in 25% and they'll usually want to see you put it in first. So if it's a $500,000 build, even though you're going to have $200,000 of equity when it's done and you already technically own the lands, you have 100 grand of equity there, they may still want to see you put in 25% on that construction on the loan to cost. Um, They're getting better now and they're starting to take into account the land value as part of your equity. But it it all depends. Like if you're where you're brand new and you go into a grade A bank, they may totally forget about the fact about the land. They might say, you don't really have a history. We still want to see you get this to like framed up before we start putting money into this thing. Yeah, I think I think that you got a, a simple answer, um, Amanda, from for, for what's a really a more complicated question. Not yeah. from us, but but from that broker saying, oh, it's not possible, you can't do it that way. I think there is a way to do it. I think you're probably running up against some obstacles of them saying, well, you know, if this is your first endeavor, maybe you're not the person we want to loan this money to in this capacity. Yeah. Um, certainly a private lender could do this and, and they might be the right fit because you just sell them on the idea of the package which would involve things like Neil mentioned, getting the land appraised as is and trying to juice that land appraisal through the roof because that is your equity, getting an appraisal of the as complete of the building and hopefully that turns out really, really good and then get your cost of construction. So then when you go to this private lender, you can say, look at the equity I already have, look at what the end value is going to be. I'm effectively asking you for this, but you can see the light at the end of the rainbow and bring on a builder that's reputable enough that they can really cost that thing out, do some renderings and put this great package together you're yeah. going to eat it on the rate but you're going to get it done with less cash out of pocket the the other say less cash out of pocket the other things you can save on with private is like with a regular bank they might want to see a cost consultant involved yeah so that yeah. can cost because it's okay two grand for the initial report and a thousand dollars each time you want to draw six draws okay now you just spent eight thousand dollars when you factor it into your interest rate that might actually bump your interest rate up by two three points additionally the time value of putting in the cost consulting so you got to do all the work to have everything lined out for them they're gonna have a ton of questions they're gonna do a bunch of site visits and it might take two weeks every time for you to get money privates might be like yeah we're all good a private may even just send somebody from their office to go look at your build and give you a check mark no cost to you it's already factored in and they'll release the money the next day Um, and that's some of the experience that i've had where literally it got to the point where we had a relationship i could take phone pictures send it to them within three hours cash was in my account uh on the same note i've done with with better banks at way lower interest rates cost consultant had to come out an appraiser had to come out it took two and a half weeks they didn't feel that i had hit exactly they they shaved it down by three percent i didn't get quite as much money plus a hold back and it it was just such a pain in the butt that realistically i was like you know what i'll pay the extra few percentage points because really i don't have to pay any of the extra costs and the money just turns over quick which sometimes is really important when you're being squeezed by a contractor and you don't have an alternative option to get the money yeah. So you could also look at bringing in the contractor and depending on who the contractor was, they may be able to do some financing in house or make arrangements whereby if they get um, some sort of temporary first position on the land that they could build it and effectively sell it to you as a turnkey at the end. Like I think you could do something creative there. Yeah. Um, so just continue to, to plug away at that because I do think there is something there. Yeah. Um, Adam, man, these questions are taking a little while, but we're, we're doing good here. I think this is interesting stuff. So these are good questions. Yeah. Uh, Adam says he's in Toronto with tenants below market rent and capped increases. How can I increase um, the rents to increase my valuation and unlock his equity? Um, we, full disclosure, we don't operate in Ontario, so we don't know the nuance of that. Um, but you're we dug running into up, it a bit. Yeah, we dug into it a bit and you, you do really have a, a challenge on your hands there as Neil can kind of elaborate on. Yeah. So when we dug into it a bit, we found that it's even more difficult there than we thought it is for us. Um, and that is you can give 120 days written notice in Ontario for renovation. Um, but you have to, even if you renovate the unit, you have to provide the debt tenant the ability to move back into your unit at the same rate that it was at. Yeah. So and, it, <laughs> and if you don't, you have to pay them. For the time that they were out and you have to even when you're doing renovation I believe you have to cover the cost for them to be out of the unit during that time to a maximum of 90 days but still you have to cover some allocation there yeah a to be determined inconvenience fee yeah so and it, then they can get to move back in and then they get to move back in at the previous rate not at an increased rate at the previous rate it's that would be so difficult i don't even know what you would do like that is you're you're basically hooped yeah. um 
as far as I can understand, yeah. it's it's very tough for you to be able to get your valuation up. The best thing I think you can do is always adding units. It looks like developing makes the most sense in these scenarios. Um, yeah. I mean, a couple little tricks I would try there, Adam, is moving forward, look at the nuance of your tenancy regulations. And um, when you get a vacancy, one, swing for the fences on, on rent, but two, break out things like laundry, storage lockers, utilities, parking, uh, all of these things that can then be independent of your base rent. So even if your base rent is only going up by 2%, maybe your parking's going up by 10%. Yeah. Right? Maybe storage is going up by 10% to try to stay above water. And certain people listening to this, well, the people who think that that's terrible aren't listening to this show anyway, but this is what you need to do to kind of protect yourself in some of these instances. This is also Um, where you, you need to be making serious offers to your tenants to buy them out. This is the other thing I was going to say. I would borderline, I would go with, sit down with my broker and sit down with appraiser and say, okay, I've got these 12 units here and my rents are, call it $1,000. What is my change in valuation and what is my access to equity if I can get those rents up to $1,400? Yeah. And quick math, that's 4800 bucks a month times 12 months. You're roughly $60,000 a year times a 20 times multiplier. It's a significant amount of money, $1.2 yeah. give or take. Yep. Right. Uh, and if you can access even 75% of that, you know, it's, it's a significant amount of money. Yep. Um, that tells me you got a lot of money to pay these people out. And I would start going hyper aggressive on offering these people money to leave. Yeah. And actually this isn't just on site. note. I remember seeing a story a few months ago, uh, set of tenants in San Francisco got 750 K USD. So a million dollars Canadian to move from their unit. Soon, wow. the new equity play is not going to be buying the real estate. It's going to be sitting be there, signing leases as cheap as you can, <laughs> and then reselling it back you, to the landlord. You think that's crazy, but this is this would be the world that some people would aspire to. That like the tenants get so much control that that's how they get protected, and that's how they get a piece of the real estate market is through those sort of rights. Yeah, yeah and selling. I wonder if yeah. rental arbitrage would make sense. Like if you can go out and rent a bunch of units at a thousand bucks a month. Then you release them at twelve hundred bucks a month. You that get, goes on. You get already. to carry. You get to carry the one at a thousand dollars a month. So then you you have the landlord by the gonads, and you're also making cash on top of that. Yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Crazy situation. Last one here. What do we got? Laird, how can I convince someone exiting the business? We're assuming real estate uh, to do a vendor take back with me. What are the benefits of the arrangement, and also how does it affect my debt servicing from a lender's perspective? Love this question. Yeah. So. Convincing someone, I mean, that's there. Like, there's a lot of nuances to that. Um, I think it really depends on who you're, who the person that you're dealing with is. But I think making sure that they understand the benefits to both parties, that's the biggest thing. You got to bring bring all the benefits on how it's going to help make the deal cross the finish line, and additionally how it can help them maybe save on some taxes, um, reduce and give them a cash flow, whatever, however it's structured. Kind of what it's going to do. Maybe give them some return on the money. You throw an interest rate against the vendor take back. Mm-hmm. So like, look, like, yeah, you were going to take this money and go invest it. I'm going to give you 6% anyway. So you're already going to be making money on your money. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a monthly payment every month. Uh, you're not going to have a, such a big tax bill today on and on and on all these things. Um, so I think that's how you do it. And obviously understanding your, your audience. Um, the Yeah. You have to understand right off the bat if they have equity in the property. It's not yeah. a given that they have equity that's to hold thing. back for you. If you know, the property is a million bucks and they owe seven fifty. Yeah. They don't have any equity to hold for you. So you have to understand that. The other thing you have to understand is how much they're making a month on the property. Um, and then what the possible tax ramifications are going to be from them. And you, you get that information, frankly, by asking and you build that rapport, you ask them those questions. Um, then they will be inclined to do a vendor take back if they want to kick some of their uh, tax implications down the road if they want to continue to have a um, stream of income from the property by way of you paying them interest uh, only payments for a period of a couple of years. And they may just want to do it for you because if you build up that rapport, they like you, you like them. If you didn't pit them against sense. their broker, then they yeah, might be yeah. inclined to do it, this for you. Sometimes, you know, going being nice goes a long way. But it does have real benefits in the form of deferred taxes, uh, continued cash flow, getting the deal done. Um, and I guess those are the big ones. <laughs> Getting to say VTB all the time and sounding cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so those are the benefits. We're going to do a whole course on that, actually. We we're are. still building out the website, um, but there's going to be a lot of that in there. We're going to do, do a detailed one. Like this question here, I think we'd like to answer more so in the course, but it's how does it affect my debt servicing from a lender's perspective? Right. 
there's a million and one ways to look at this because it depends how you register that loan. Yeah. Uh, you can register that loan in a bunch of different ways. You might be able to put it as a second behind a different loan on a different property. Exactly. Might I not assuming, even need to be on that property. Exactly. So it might not actually impact you on that front. Additionally, likely it's not going to be a credit-based, um, credit-registered person that's going to be yeah. going against it. So really, it could be a promissory note. It could be a promissory note. And so the I terrible sound. The banks aren't necessarily going to see it when they when they do it. So there's there's a lot of options there. I think we're going to leave that one there because I think we want to do a, a specific course on VTBs. So look for that, and we will we'll go into all the nuances and kind of the tricks of the trade to be able to get them in place and continue to get good financing. I have one other question that someone asked me um, because a lot of people looking at the um, crazy market and how hard it is to secure properties and bidding wars and blah, blah, blah. And some people want all the bids to be transparent so that you can see, oh, that person bid 500 grand. I'm going to build bid 501 grand mm-hmm. and the next person build 502 and have this, which isn't logistically realistic, at least until we move everything online. They asked me if, if you could reinvent the system, what would be your crazy idea of how to do it? And this is my crazy idea that you are not allowed to sell the property for more than 5% over your asking price or less than 5% under your asking price. And as a result, you have to be very, very specific with your asking price. So if you list that property at 500,000, the most you're allowed to take is 525 and the least you're allowed to take is 475. And this would allow um, everyone to understand what the property is going to trade for and would get people away from this thing of just price it so damn low and just run it up and blah, blah, blah. If we were starting, that'll never happen in a million years. I'm just saying. Here's, I'll tell you why I don't like is, it right off the hop. Oh, I love it. Let's hear it. Okay. It limits your upside, but you have limit, yeah. limitless downside. I know you're saying you, they, you, you can't go 5% below your asking price, but if it doesn't sell, at some point you're going to have to lower the price. Correct. You'd also be more likely to start your price higher and slowly bring it down. Yeah. I'm saying if you wanted to return uh, balance and predictability and fairness to a crazy market, this is what you'd need to do. And, you know, th- that's... You, it's, sound, you sound like a buyer, not a seller, Chandler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying this is a hypothetical. Someone asked me what I would do. and Yeah, no, uh, I, I, do like, I do like that in general because it adds, it adds a lot more control over it. And I think... Also means you need to price correctly. You need to price correctly. I feel like this might be an internal anger that you have towards some of the listings out there. No, today. no, not at all. Like, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. but it just it just would be better. And then oh, also, yeah, you can imagine, sense. then you get all these offers, and you're actually deciding on the offer based on more than just price. They're all going to go unconditional at that point. You're likely get unconditional offers. Some of these letters that people write actually might have some weight. It actually will um, go down to letters. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> this would be. So we have 14 offers at 525 because we listed at 500. Um, and they're all unconditional. We have some letters here, so now I'm judging these people based on their ESG score. But also, if <laughs> <laughs> you've been following the I podcast, hate, now I hate the system. You, you know that Chandler's about to go off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not an ESG fan. Okay, so in our last episode, we talked a lot about buying land uh, for everything. You know, just wanting to hold it and how much money you're going to have to put down. Uh, if you get a piece of dirt in the middle of nowhere that's beautiful, realizing the costs associated with servicing with power cutting a driveway, clearing the lot, preparing a pad for a home, getting your well, getting your septic, all of those things. Uh, Then we talked a little bit about the importance of, well, we talked today about the importance of getting a planner involved and maybe a site person involved when you're um, looking at what you can do on a lot, regardless if that's small scale or multi-scale building. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about pricing, I think. Yeah, we construction. are. You can skip all these steps too. Like I just, I was just sitting here and I do it and I was like, man, that's overwhelming. You can skip all of these steps if you just hire a builder. Yeah, effectively yeah, yeah. but anyways let's uh, let's talk about cost of build because i know a lot of people are looking at doing it themselves because it is expensive to hire a builder it's expensive to build in general and it's very expensive to hire a builder any builders want to come talk your talk on here let us know we would yeah exactly we'd love to have on uh, some builders that could d- d- tell us about their their business kind of what they offer some of the packages they can do and what they can do for a client um because i know i have a lot of people that ask me about it especially now yeah we're gonna have the guys from Lindsay here on and at yeah. some point, uh, but also I'd be curious to see a residential home builder would be nice. Yeah. yeah. So off the hop, we're going to start with single families. Uh, I think a lot of people are asking about building single families. Again, it's more relevant now, just purely based on the fact that there's no inventory. And a lot of people feel like, you know, if I'm going to spend 700 grand on a house, maybe I want to customize it a little bit and kind of make it my own or pick where it goes versus being stuck in a certain subdivision and set to a certain plan because most subdivisions now have four or five plans that you can pick from, and that's it. So it might not fit what you're yeah. looking for. And one color. And yeah, well, yeah, one well, color for the walls. One shade. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, this this gives you that opportunity to do so. We brought the Altus Building Guide, and Altus Building Guide is something that comes out every year. They do their 
researched through a ton of, I guess, pulling a bunch of data uh, and giving rough rough numbers. And they, they're kind of funny because for markets that are a little smaller, the numbers can skew if there was two or three giant mansions that were built. Um, but taking a look at wood-framed uh, residential single-family home in Halifax is what we're going to use because that's where we are. Uh, they put the pricing between 100 to 155 bucks a square foot. That, unfortunately, due to the pace that this market is transitioning at, that's out of date, is impossible. Yeah. About two years ago, you could build for about $100 a square foot on the cheapest single-story, like, bungalow-style finishes, and you'd have to be very involved, not hiring a builder. You'd have to be yeah, literally yeah. out there framing on the, on the stuff yourself, hanging, like, hanging board yourself. Like, that would be the only way to get it done. The this is also going to be without HST, and this is also going to be uh, through the construction industry, which you are going to pay these builders a 10% markup on on the cost, and then there's going to be HST. And I know, I know yeah. there's rebates and all that stuff, but yeah. The cheapest that I have heard in the last probably six, eight months is $185 a square foot. Man, I haven't even heard that. But and, that's, yeah. and that's cheap um, to now build like a single family home that they're called custom, even though you don't think, like you think in your head custom and you think some crazy compound with like glass everything and elevators and all this stuff that's custom but there's like to build your own house is custom, custom is you get to choose what floor you yeah get, well you get a choice of five floors the second you, you move one. one wall for a bedroom you're into a custom house yeah um and so i i would expect to see somewhere more in the wheelhouse of like 250 a square 250, foot 250 a square yeah. foot and if you get into high-end finishes three 325 a square foot yeah easily and if you want to go to that crazy elevator glass stuff sky's the limit yeah. Um, but that was what you should be budgeting, and that's plus HST plus land. Yeah. And there's good chance for cost overruns. This is why everyone is like, oh, I'm going to be savvy here. I'm going to get a little piece of land. I'm just going to put a small house. Doesn't worry, Don't worry about Chandler. It's just going to be a small 1,200-square-foot home. It's like, man, at home you're talking about it's about 300 grand to build. Yeah. The land's going to be, even if the land's 50,000, we already talked about why there's 40 extra grand there. So, you know, you're 350 plus nine, you're $440,000 to build that new 1,200-square-foot like, 12 home. On like a slab. Yeah, and and yeah. that's and this is sometimes where you end up going back to buying these pre-made builder homes because they're able to get that number down because they are building the same product a hundred times and so they're able to order everything times a hundred yep. and they're bringing everything down marginally and they have crazy speeds of getting them up and so you're gonna say how is this possible because I looked at a house on brand new on whatever street for five hundred. And it's 2,000 square feet. By your building metrics, they wouldn't even be able to build it. They also getting the lots at a yeah, discount. The lots, yeah. lots are at a huge discount. They have some write-offs, and additionally, they're building for way less because again, they're using huge, huge uh, economies of scale to buy everything that they have. There's also a misconception that these builders are making a lot of money on these houses, and they've mm. certainly done well the last couple of years because they did th- these on mass factory builders were able to get some material pricing locked in and then rode a wave where over the course of the six to 12 month construction period, the market happened to go up 20%. So they took a, you know, a 5% margin on their home build and ended up with a 25% margin on it. So they certainly crushed it there. But historically speaking, there has not been a big margin on new construction homes. No, they were working very hard to make what I think is a fair amount of money, like relative, I wouldn't do it. Like it's it's so <laughs> difficult, right? Like if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And the only way they can do it is is because of the volume. It's exactly they're making the money on the volume. The other thing to consider is some of them actually didn't make any money in the last couple of years because they did the reverse where they pre-sold because it's nice to have yeah. a pre-sold so you know what the price in the house is and you know that you got someone at the end to buy it. But they pre-sold at four hundred grand. Material costs spiked, labor costs spiked in the twelve months it took them to build it. They actually spent over the four hundred grand, and now someone else got it, and the house is now also probably worth six hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. So there was yeah. actually a lot of builders that didn't necessarily lose their shirt, but they lost a lot of money on the product that they had. I've I've heard of builders going to a buyer and saying, "Hey, we'll give you fifty thousand dollars to buy the home back to you." To I not have close. one. I have one going right now. Yeah. That exact amount. Yeah. yeah. And but the thing is, it's probably worth about one hundred and fifty more. Um, but the yeah. builder is also threatening not to build the house, and we're Ooh. actually past due date. We we wrote this contract about fourteen Ooh. months ago. That's messy. And the house is framed, and that's it. That is messy. That's going to that's it's going, going to, to courts. Coming to a court near you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've seen a couple others like that where um, there've been building delays and then arguments over deposits and lost value because you know as a buyer you feel entitled to that appreciation that you would have gotten, and now the deal gets pulled out from you. Not only do you want your time, but you want the lost opportunity. I, cost I, I think you are entitled to that appreciation because if, yeah, the, mar- if the market if the market had gone sideways or even down a little bit. That builder would be coming after you for that closing price. I have gotten that question from every b- buyer who has b- built. They said, well, what if the price of wood comes down? Do we get it for less? 
Yeah. It's like, no, you do not. No chance. That's yeah. so I I think I think they have the full right to do it. You signed a contract in good faith, you put a deposit to buy it at that per, at that purchase price. There's no reason that they should be able to not deliver on that. And I mean I say that from a place where obviously I'm not being necessarily losing money on building homes. Yeah. But that's kind of the risk that you take in that game. Um the other thing to consider with this is like you're like, oh, man, those prices seem insane. A modular home, which is like a thousand square feet, is like two hundred grand now. To buy a pre-made yeah. Mobile yep. home, like a trailer home that you think of, those are Kent Hill, Kent Homes, Maple Leaf, yeah, a couple hundred grand, and yep. that that was the other thing I was going to say before. For a little period of time there, modulars were starting to make a lot of sense because the home is built all indoors, so everything's perfectly straight, lined up, super clean and tidy. Mm-hmm. You put your and foundation quick. in the ground, it's quick, and then they roll it out and then drop it in place, and you you hook it up. And and modular homes are not what people think. A lot of people I think think they're like they look like trailers. Yeah. You'd be surprised. There's houses out in brand new subdivisions that are modular homes. Like they can do two story houses with a garage and that's a modular. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It comes out in two or four sections and they literally put the sections together and they'll put the drywall seams, tape up the drywall seams, hook up all the electrical, hook up all the plumbing and it looks like a normal house. There was actually a company, I think in Toronto or Montreal, that as a publicity stunt, they built a four unit apartment building in two weeks because it was all modular. So they prepped the site and they dropped it off and they had it connected in two weeks. That's it's, neat. It's, it's very cool. It's amazing technology. I think probably it is the future, but realize their tile is still costing the same. Their fixtures are still costing the same. So they're eating all those delays. Yeah. They're eating all those price increases. Um, you know, so the advantage is now speed only. It's not, and even the speed has kind of dropped off because they got a lot of big federal contracts for uh, indigenous communities, affordable housing, you know, so yeah. um, it's, it's a challenge right now. But Historically, I mean, everything's all about recency bias because back in the day, you could not give these new construction homes away, <laughs> and then a lot of builders went under. So there's ebbs and flows for all this. Yeah, there we were going to touch on financing. We talked about that a lot last time. Um, we also have subdividing land on here. I think that's something that we touched on a little bit last time. Uh, just talking about like making sure you have corner lots, you have the frontage that you need. Yeah, understanding your zoning, this so we can get a planner involved. Um, that is a great way sometimes if you can buy a piece of land that you can cut off a chunk and sell it, it might give you the cash to get you started on your house or just give you some extra pocket change. Frontage, frontage, frontage. Frontage is so key. Frontage and what are the neighboring property uses? Yeah. Those are everything. If you've got the biggest acreage ever, but only 30 feet of frontage, you are in for a head of, yeah, yeah, Yeah. you've got very limited things that you can do. If you've got a small parcel or you've got a good frontage, but it's not too deep, and everything in the back of you is established residential, your setbacks are going to be such that you could be a lot more limited than you think. Yeah. Right? So those are, you know, reasons, again, to consult a planning person who's going to be able to go through the bylaws, look at the lot, and really start giving you some, some valuable information there. While we're, before we move on to multi-unit, I'm just looking through the, um, the residential pricing. So... For custom, I think the custom-built single-family homes is what actually makes more sense. Uh, for Halifax, they have 260 to 520, which I think actually, so if you say on the bottom end, 260 is what it's going to cost you to build a normal house. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 520, I can see being for custom home. Looking through some of these numbers, to build a custom home, the high end in Vancouver is 1135 a square foot. 1135 yeah. a square foot. So that means you're building a 1,000-square-foot house for $1.1 million. Now, obviously, super high-end finishes, but that yeah, is insanity. That's crazy. Um, and yeah. on the low end, their lowest is 450. So they're saying you're building a thousand square foot house for 500 grand. That makes sense. That 155 before HST and before markup um, for the single families, also with an unfinished basement. Because the other thing about square footage is the first thousand is the most expensive. Yeah. Right? Because if you build a one level house and you put engineered roof trusses on it, if you had made a two level house, you're still getting the same roof. Yeah. And if you put a slab or a foundation and put one story on it or three stories on it, the foundation still costs the same. So the first thousand square feet are some of the most expensive. It's like when people look at this and say, oh, well, I should be able to do a renovation then at, you know, a certain amount per square foot. Not if you're doing just your kitchen and your ensuite bath. Like those are the two most expensive per foot things you can do. So, um, you know, a lot of these numbers would be based off effectively a 2,500 square foot, uh, contractor built standard quality home and that's where that 250 that we're seeing 260 down there makes a lot of sense yeah exactly and it's kind of crazy the other thing i'm noticing is halifax on this list actually has the lowest cost out of any of these cities and we have vancouver calgary edmonton winnipeg gta ottawa montreal and st john's on there as well and we're about the same as st john's we're where they're, they're, they're still showing as being higher yeah. here so i think this this yeah, might this. be a little bit skewed and i think st john's probably shows a bit more accurate number to what we would actually be spending 
Yeah. Um, I'm surprised though to see that Montreal is um, not that much more expensive, and but it is more expensive, but their actual real estate's cheaper. Hmm. Like in, in practice, yeah, yeah. the real estate's cheaper, but their build costs are higher. What do we got here for uh, multi-unit? What are they saying? So multi-unit, if you go down here, it depends what we're looking at, but actually, sorry, it's on the, it's on the top. Uh, condominiums and apartments, they have it actually pegged up by about 70%. So they have it 170 to $240 uh, a square foot. Um, that hmm. seems also a little low. Yeah. Um, it. What are you seeing? I mean, you're in, you're in the midst of one right now. Man, let me think. Well, so much of this varies on parking because there's big expenses with parking and there's soft costs and your land costs. Um, you're probably, oh man, yeah, more more than that, <laughs> more than that. Um, you so you were talking. Yeah. Yours is a six stories with two underground. Yeah. So, okay, so six stories, two underground parking lot. I can't Use remember it. my overall square footage though. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I remember we talked about it a bit. I believe before before parking, it was around 170 bucks to 180 bucks a square foot. Yeah. Um, plus HST above ground. Yeah. For some reason, I feel like it ends up being as crazy as it sounds, like around 270. Yeah. Square foot, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've heard that as well. Um, and sometimes maybe in your head you're thinking, oh, that's not too bad because if in the average unit's 700 square feet, uh, then I'm spending around 200 grand to build it. But you're forgetting mm-hmm. all of the common areas. Yep. The, the parking. Which is about 20 to 25% of the building. Yes, exactly. But if you count parking, it's about 40% of the building. Exactly. You so have you have to add that parking. on to yeah. everything. Um, and this is, again, where my obsession with looking now is buying buildings that have enough land that I can do exterior parking, keep them low-rise, keep them wood. Now, again, factoring in that Chandler's is concrete. Um, I just did a wood construction one that Lindsay's price for me, uh, and it came in around the low 200s. It was around $235 a square foot. And that was around 112, 120,000 square feet. So we're getting economies of scale there. And it's coming down to around 235 to 250 square foot still. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's wood frame, yeah. normal finishes, two-bedroom units, nothing crazy, no big three-bedroom penthouses and all these fancy finishes, nothing like that. Just standard, standard finish. Um, so I think realistically for like a turnkey product nowadays in a concrete build, you're looking at $300 a square foot. Yeah, which... If you're thinking of doing something smaller, like I think it was Hannah who asked about doing a duplex there, she's going to be around the 250 a square foot price point. If she yeah. contracts it herself, maybe does a little bit better, but you know, probably best to leave that to a, a, a GC. It's going to be about 250 a square foot. Yeah. yeah. The now the difference we have on here is we're talking a little bit about the difference is wood, concrete, and hybrid. Um, to make it clear, so obviously wood construction, the, the building is stick framed out of wood. Concrete, the building is made from formed concrete. Uh, hybrid, there's kind of a diff- couple different options. A lot of times you'll see a concrete first floor, like a p- concrete podium, followed by up to five stories of wood. Um, or there is what's called, uh, I forget what it's called overpour? actually. Yeah, it's called overpour basically, like yeah. where they put the slabs in between. So every your floor surface is made from concrete, but the rest is either wood or metal framing or a combination of the two. Um, and those seem to be becoming a lot more common nowadays. Yeah. There's a lot of distaste, I think, for wood just for sound travel, um, water, water penetration, flooding, issues like that. Um, and then concrete, people love concrete, but on the flip side, it's quite expensive to build. So this kind of these hybrid models are getting to be quite popular because they can help save some costs. Um, also, why you see the concrete podiums a lot is just for commercial spaces. Yeah, you, you need the fire separations. You need the fire separations yeah. and the noise separations. Like if you have a restaurant below an apartment, you need a fair bit of, like you said, fire separation and noise because otherwise it's going to be nuts, it's going to be smells. Um, but I think the one thing I see a lot with the concrete that makes it really nice being in the restoration industry, when one unit floods, only that unit floods, or maybe a little bit will seep into another yeah. unit. Yeah. Wood, like we have a few buildings that like a pipe will go in a wood unit and it'll hit eight more or 20 more units. Yeah. Like it's an explosion and it rips through the whole building and it sprinkles everywhere. That's why one of the things, if you're out there shopping for condos, something to consider is whether it's a wood construction condo or a concrete construction condo. Uh, I think that's probably all the time we have today. Is there anything else on our list here that we need to go through? No, we, we touched on that. I think, yeah, we were a little bit quick on the, on the multi-unit stuff. We'll talk about more. Again, same thing. We're, we're trying to build some videos for our website where we go really in depth to break down all of the costs, the differences, the benefits. Um, and then also, again, talking about maybe some of the new CMHC stuff with the Flex program, 95% loans. Um, And then as we go on through our builds, we'll have more and more in-depth information about the costing that we're experiencing. Yeah, excited for it. And thanks so much for the questions because I think this generated some great discussion here, things that maybe we hadn't thought about mentioning. So please continue to comment, put that stuff out there. We'll respond a little bit on 
the the post, but we'll also try to get into it on the episode. Listen, all right, we're going to sign off today, but we want to also give a shout out to Blue Nose Home Inspections. They're our sponsor. They came on board. We're super excited to have them. And something a lot of people have been asking, we covered this a bit during the home inspection or the uh, home buying process, is what's the role of a home inspector in this market where a lot of people are waiving home inspections? A couple things that are kind of cool out there. If you're a seller, you might consider getting your home pre-inspected. So when you put your home on the market, you already have this inspection report that you can provide buyers. And if they want to take it, then it increases the likelihood that they may waive conditions in their offer on your home. So as a seller, you may actually be considering to get uh, a home inspection from Blue Nose Inspections. Another situation is, yes, you've waived your home inspection, but once you move into the home, it's still a good idea to have an inspector through and give you a little bit uh, of a rundown of how the property operates, how it works, things you might want to put in your home maintenance schedule. So um, Blue Nose, you don't have to necessarily just call them during your conditional period. You might call them the day after you move in? I'm going to give a super quick horror story for anyone who's still listening. My house, which I most recently bought, I forgot to mention this and what's going on in my day-to-day. Uh, I'm renovating it, and I didn't get an inspection done, and now we're finding the roof structure is toast, and I'm actually cutting the entire roof off of my house Ooh. as we speak. So get Ooh. a home inspection. Should have called Blue Nose. All right, thanks so much, guys. Keep listening. Keep commenting. Love you lots. Chat with you next time. Bye. Thank you for tuning in for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us a rating and send us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Master Keys Podcast. See you next week.